This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point said on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 74 is, what is the self or subject? And we read Bruce Fink's The Lacanian Subject from 1996 and Jacques Lacan's paper, The Mirror Stage as Formative of the Function of the Eye as Revealed in Psychoanalytic Experience from 1949. You can join the discussion and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lentzemeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. At last we are here. This is supposed to be the thing. It is the Rosetta Stone. This is the guy. Actually, we said the same thing with Saussure. That, that if you understand Lacan, then you will understand the whole mass of weird contemporary French philosophy. Is that just a bullshit myth? He's not the key to unlocking anything. If he's the key to unlocking something, it's a very complicated lock. <laughs> it's also an obscure lock. Yeah, I think <laughs> even Fink and other explicators of Lacan, who are not themselves obscurantist, will admit that Lacan is needlessly obscurantist, or not necessarily needlessly. Sometimes they'll justify it as a way to stimulate one into being more thoughtful, I suppose. Part of the problem is because he has an idiosyncratic way of writing and set of terms, you run into the same problem that I would run into with reading Kant for the first time, where he has all kinds of technical terms. And so you end up just sort of kludging them all together. And you have the same thing with Hegel. The experience, though, in reading through in the pieces of Lacan that I read, where other stuff I've read, I felt like it was really hard and they weren't very good writers necessarily, but that the more time I spent with it, the more I sussed it out. And I confess that I had some paragraphs in Lacan that I felt like I got it better the more I spent with it. And other times I felt like it was purposefully obscure. And then talking to Mark, he said, well, yeah, actually, he does that on purpose. Yeah. So all this has been a reason why the main thing we read for an episode on Lacan was not by Lacan, was by this American psychoanalyst, Bruce Fink, called The Lacanian Subject, which Wes recommended. And it's because, at least according to Fink, you have to know basically what Lacan is talking about before you try to read Lacan, if you're going to understand any of it. A lot of it depends on, you know, having a background in Freud. So barring acquiring a background in Freud and becoming scholars of Lacan, where we do the work of piecing together all the different things that he's done and going through it very carefully and constructing what it is he's trying to say, a very laborious task, we're left with relying on someone who's done that to some extent. What's our way in on this? Well, let's say how what we're going to talk about today supposedly answers the question. So the question I was originally going to put in the way that we put several other episodes that we've had, what is the self? Because what Lacan is talking about here relates very well to the way that Hegel in our Hegel's Phenomenology episode talked about that, that the self is not something that's inborn. It's something that is acquired and it's acquired through our interactions with people. Lacan is all over that and addresses Hegel specifically and then we did the Buber episode more recently, which sort of added to that the idea of it's not this struggle to the death like Hegel thought. It's love. It's the mother's love. 
it's these uh, real connections that we form with people. And that's how we get a sense of self in the first place, or at least an authentic sense of self, as opposed to a very surface level, unreflective sense of self. Buber and Hegel, you might just think are, are sort of dabblers in this area. Lacan takes this as his main quest through his career, seemingly. However, when I threw out the question, what is the self to West right before we started, he said, no, no, no. we got to say, what is the subject? Because that's the title here, the Lacanian subject. Anybody who knows Lacan will say, self, that doesn't capture subject. So yeah, and then there's a movement in psychoanalysis called self-psychology, which is its own thing. And so this gives us a good entry point into talking about Lacan. One of the things he's pivoting off of is the Freud's notion of ego. The way Freud actually wrote that was, so Freud wrote about this sort of tripartite division of the psyche, ego, superego, and the id. And originally in the German, that's, he uses the ich, the I, for ego. It ended up being translated as ego, but some would argue unhelpfully, because there's a more down-to-earth quality just to saying the I. And then the superego was the uber-ich, and then the id was their s, the it, this undefinable part. Yep. Psychoanalysts after Freud were focused on their conception of the psyche really centered on the ego. You started out with the id, which was associated with all these, this chaotic set of impulses, the id. And then the way Freud describes it, the ego actually is sort of a skin that develops out of the id in the way the id brushes up against the world, especially because of the fact that you can't have what you want all the time, the reality principle and then the superego is associated with societal prohibitions on top of that. So the ego helps you navigate the world, basically. It's associated with things as simple as perception and motility, but also rationality and decision-making processes. One of the main points we're going to get with Lacan here is that the ego, in a way, is imaginary. It's a, I don't know if false self would be the right way to describe it, but it's imaginary in the sense that it's constructed by the individual. So I'm reminded of Sartre in this, in the sense in which the ego, when we read the, the transcendental ego, Sartre is arguing for this sort of empirically defined ego as opposed to sort of a transcendental Cartesian substance ego. And Lacan is concerned with the same sort of thing. So when we get to this idea of the mirror stage, that's really where we get the development of the ego with Lacan. So that's early on and say between six months and 18 months, right? One way to think about it is when at the point where a child recognizes itself in the mirror in a way that many animals will never be able to do, right? They'll never be able to look into a mirror and see an image of themselves and say, that's me. Of course, we don't have to take that literally. It's not like that for the mirror stage to happen developmentally. We need a mirror, you know, or that if you're blind, you're screwed or something like that. The mirroring happens through another human being in the way that we partly talked about with Hegel. But what's critical is that through some way or another, we basically come to have a conception of ourselves. And it's false in the sense that it's constructed to attribute to ourselves a wholeness that we don't really have. So in the case of the mirror image, say a child who is not yet fully mobile, is sort of stumbling around and, and in some way is coming out of a feeling of fragmentation from earlier on, like, you know, an infant who sort of takes their fist and gnaws on it or is sort of impressed by their own arm. It's unclear how 
integrated that their conceptions of themselves is. But when you see yourself in a mirror, you see a whole. You have this integrated conception. The Lacanian idea is that this idea of a substantial integrated ego self is based upon that. It's constructed out of that mirroring moment. But it's not the subject. The subject will turn out to be something else. So is it easy to say in what way that is different from Freud's ego? Freud says a little bit about the development of the ego, but not a lot. He has some very nice metaphors for talking about that development, but in kind of abstract terms. Freud will think very abstractly about what it means, for instance, to go from a symbiotic relationship with a mother or an early caretaker, which is almost to the point where you don't make a distinction between yourself and the other. You're almost merged. And then this sort of gradual sense of developing an idea that the mother is separate, for instance. And that idea is developed critically out of frustration and her absence, which will become important to Lacan and to symbolization, because the development of symbols is first and foremost a development of a fantasy which serves as a substitute gratification for what's really there, right? A symbol is a substitute for what's real. And early on, the theory is that that substitution is like a thumb sucking. It's like something that gives you some sort of indirect gratification when you can't have the real thing. So the mother's absence, the first thing you learn how to symbolize or to signify in Lacan's terms is the mother. You learn to signify her because of her absence. She's gone. And so the signifier stands in her place. Wes, were you talking about Freud or Lacan there? Well, I'm trying to get at how the Freudian concept of the ego differs. As far as I can tell, Lacan is a sort of elaboration of Freud. Freud isn't telling us where the subject in this sense resides. Although I think Lacan is reacting to a tradition that came out of Freud in America and England of what's called ego psychology, where the therapeutic goal is to strengthen the ego. The analyst becomes a powerful parental figure to the analyzant. They become someone with whom the analyzant can identify and therefore strengthen their ego to function better according to societal expectations. That's not necessarily Freudian. I don't think Lacan would never say, oh, yes, that's Freud, but that is a tradition. That's one of the traditions that came out of Freud. And that's what Lacan is reacting against. So I don't think he's reacting against specifically the Freudian concept of ego, which is abstract enough to be put to a number of different purposes. He's reacting against this specific Anglo-American tradition of thinking of the ego as the locus of the psychoanalytic cure, whereas for Lacan, it'll be much different. Before we go on, I think we need to tell our audience why it is that you in particular among us are running off at such great length about this, (laughs) that you've been forced to spend quite a bit of time with Lacan and Freud, etc., I've been taking classes on and off at a psychoanalytic institute for years, so I have quite a bit of background in Freud. I've read a lot of Freud and read it carefully. Lacan, not so much. I mean, I've read some and I've spent more time with Lacan than will be evident from what I have to say in this podcast, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) frankly, baffled by a lot of it. I have a real antipathy to the way Lacan writes into that kind of obscurantism. And it's mainly through readings that there's some really wonderful writers out there who really do great justice to these ideas. I mean, and make clear how fascinating and interesting they are, regardless of how one feels about actually reading Lacan. Now, one could say this is a cop out and this is a unwillingness to do the hard work involved, you know, with, say, Hegel and Kant. Maybe it's because I was younger. I was willing to do that. But on the other hand, I never got the feeling from Hegel and Kant of this 
sort of pretension factor, which I get from Lacan, this idea of someone trying to seem profound. And that's really a turnoff to me. Now, I become an agnostic about that for the purpose of trying to get at some of Lacan's more interesting ideas. One of the sources that you referred us to, we can point listeners to, is uh, the introduction to How to Read Lacan by Zizek, a very popular author in his own right, who writes that most of Lacan's writings are broken down into, he gave these seminars, which were open to the public. He gave them every week. Yeah, the seminars were open to the public. So those are actually a little more accessible. And the one we read this time, the mirror stage, was a speech. It wasn't one of those seminars. But then he would go back and take the material from the seminar and write a paper on it, which are mostly in this giant volume, Ecrit's writings. And those are really terse and hard to make any sense of. But according to Zizek, you kind of have to read both on any given subject to really get it, that you have to read the seminar. And he kind of wanders all over the place in the seminar and is very making little jokes and things. But if you just get that by itself, you're not going to get the overall, what was your point? But then go back to the corresponding Ecrites and you'll see that. But you wouldn't get the Ecrites at all. The Ecrites is much too terse and dense that unless you'd read the seminar, you wouldn't get that. So there's one way. We didn't do that. Instead, we read this book by Fink that gives us a pretty coherent picture, even over the various changes. I guess one of the difficulties in reading Lacan is he changes his mind about a lot of these things. He changes his conception of the construction of the self over his 40-odd years of doing this. And so Fink gives us what he admits is an, an almost artificially coherent <laughs> single picture of the psyche that it's not anywhere near as simple as Freud's id ego, superego. There you go. And Lacan is nothing, no simple formula like that, but it's at least something that we can sketch out. I stubbornly tried to start with the subversion of the subject and the dialectic of desire in the Freudian unconscious, which is one of these papers from Ecrites. It's one of those things that you read through and as you skip along, there are sentences or sections of sentences that you can understand. And the rest of it, he makes these diversions as well as these flourishes that it's, I think obscure is a good word for it. I can see in reading it why someone who has more patience and maybe why a person might be attracted to it. Mark and Wes both tried to say, look, you're going to have to read something else besides Lacan because I was stubbornly saying, let's just read Lacan because I've never read him before. And I'm a big advocate of just reading the damn stuff that people write. And I felt like, well, how bad can it really be? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it can be pretty fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I acquiesced in the end. I started reading this thing and I... <laughs> you were beaten into submission. I say, by all means, take a shot at it. There are a couple things that I'm sure we'll put as links on the website that give you a taste of it. Like there's this interview that... We got linked to from 57. That was, you could imagine actually that he could speak to a human being, which you don't get the sense when you read his papers. That being said, the Think book is actually extremely well-written and readable. And that if he's really presenting a structure of Lacan's thought, it's fascinating and interesting and coherent. And if Fink is recreating an edifice around fragments of coherence, like he's working with Heraclitus or something, then it's a different story. But whichever way it is, it's an impressive work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm willing to give the whole thing the benefit of the doubt in saying that it presents an interesting problem to talk about his style of writing and his style of communication and what effect that has. The argument is that it sort of matches the 
Lacan is right, trying to create desire. I guess creating confusion can create desire. <laughs> That's one of his therapeutic differences with a, an ego psychologist, or at least the difference that he claims. So when we say the subject, you know, is decentered, which is a famous sort of Kantian thesis, that's to say that the center goes from being the ego to being the unconscious. I did my usual extensive amount of repetitious note taking, and I feel like we've I've got some things I could throw out there to give us an entry point. Go ahead. Well, starting with um, Fink's book on the Lacanian subject, Lacan apparently had a fairly famous and mystifying quote, something he would say over and over again, which is, the unconscious is the language of the other. And Fink spends a little time explaining what that is, and I think it's worth probably delving into that. Fink asks us to think about slips of the tongue, like you accidentally say, I have to go walk the, the god, I mean the dog, right, or something like that. And following Freud, Lacan wants to say that that type of thing is not accidental or at least not meaningless. It's not simply an accident. Instead, it has somehow significance and Freud interprets it one way. And Lacan thinks that what that really is, is sort of like the term that is frequently used is eruption, but it's really sort of a breaking through of the conscious control of the ego in this underlying thing, which is called the unconscious. So it's like something speaking through from the unconscious into the conscious, breaking through into consciousness. Yeah, often case that can be an outlet for a repressed impulse. I think the example that Fink gives is someone who says... I know that my in my relationship with my father, there was a lot of tension. And I think it came from the fact that he was working too hard at a schnob he couldn't stand and took it out on me. So someone says schnob instead of job. And then most people will say, well, that's just a slip. It's a meaningless slip. But Freudian would say that there's a possible significance there having to do with, say, repressed impulses. So it's an unintentional release of something that's been repressed in language. And so in that way, it's analogous to what happens in dreams, and it's analogous to a symptom. It's a return of the repressed and an unintentional escaping of it. So the theory here is that it could be that the eldest child in the family, the older brother or sister of the speaker is a snob, and the speaker thinks that their father doted on that older sibling excessively. And then there's the word, the association to the word schnoz, the father's nose, which the speaker was afraid of as a kid. Basically, the idea is that there is chain of associations in the unconscious where you can have an impulse that you don't want to admit to yourself, say anger at a sibling or anger at a father, and it can be displaced onto something else and it comes out in that form. Right. Unlike Freud, who sees the unconscious as part of this superstructure of the subject that includes the ego and the superego and all this. Lacan says that when we have these slips of the tongue and the unconscious sort of breaks through, it's like an alien interruption. It's almost like it's not part of the subject. It's not part of what he conceives of subjectivity to be. It's almost like that language itself comes from outside of us, if you will, or comes from the other. So when he says the unconscious is the language of the other, he means in a pretty strong sense that what's happening in the unconscious and that structure of signification and chains of signifiers and symbols that Wes was talking about actually aren't part of us where we're working through something 
on an unconscious level, and then we need to reappropriate it in some way by confronting it. Rather, what he's saying is that it's almost like an alien thing that is working from outside of us. And what he's driving at is that when children are born, before they go through this mirror stage, before they have separation from the mother, before they have self-realization or self-identity, there's no language. Language is like an alien thing that's imposed upon them. The unconscious is kind of the continuing working of this alien language, this language of the other on us. Is it that it's the alien language or is it that the unconscious is that pre-alienated functioning that we have access to that is not language-based? No, that would be the real. That's the real, yeah. Okay. So the other major statement is that the unconscious is structured like a language, right? And there he's getting at something which comes right out of Freud, which is that the way the unconscious works is it's something like the slips of the tongue, but it's slippages of what Freud calls cathectic energy, or when we manifest it, we call affect, like a feeling or a mood. But any energy associated with an idea can slip between the ideas through processes which are similar to metaphor and metonymy. So they're language-based in a way. They're based on free association. So if someone is has a phobia towards horses that's really based on a phobia between their father, that's based on a kind of free association, right, between some sort of similarity or some sort of contiguity between the concepts of horse and father. Lacan's innovation here is using saucer to say that the unconscious is full of simply of signifiers. So if we remember from our saussure podcast, the sign is divided between the signifier and the signified, and the signified is actually a concept or an idea. So the signifier signifies the signified, but it's not signifying or referring to a real object in the world. It's actually referring to an idea or a concept. So for Lacan, everything that's going on in the unconscious, we don't even get to the level of these signified ideas. The associations happen at a purely syntactic or grammatical level. Yeah. The unconscious is intimately related to the other, and language comes from without. We're born into language. It's given to us all of these things that we do with the unconscious and with language, even consciously, are handed to us. All of these signifiers and the relationships between the signifiers come from our socialization. So in a way, when we're thinking and when we're unconsciously thinking, we're not thinking with our own words exactly. Even when we're consciously thinking, I think we need to fill in this picture because we started describing the unconscious as this alien thing because it's language, but the ego itself conscious thought, our intentions, they themselves too, because they are linguistic, are the others, are alien. Whereas for Freud, it seemed a little more simple that, you know, we have the ego that is us, or at least the part of us that we built through civilization. And then we have the id or the unconscious that's pushing, that's still part of us, but it's this uncontrolled part of us. And it's kind of an agency in itself. So it's kind of like we're of two minds or Three minds, if you add the superego as sort of your conscience that's bearing down on you. So there's agency all over the place for Freud, whereas for Lacan, it seems like the agency is very difficult to come by. The major point at the beginning of the Fink book, in this picture of the conscious and the unconscious, is the conscious and the ego, so all conscious talk or conscious thought would be ego talk. That is an illusion because it is cast on us by language. It is given to us by the labels that are attached to us, the language that we learn to think of ourselves in. He says there's not even a meaning to the baby's cries, 
before the parents say, oh, I bet he's hungry. And so we start thinking in terms of hunger, right? What part's the illusion? And how is that word being used in this particular case? Is it being used in a very loose way, almost a human way, that there isn't a strict correspondence between, quote unquote, the real and the language? Or is it being used as yes. in the way that it's a explicit obfuscation? It's a social creation. And he insists that it is not the subject, right? The ego is not the subject. No, the ego is something no, no, no. that is definitely illusory, not. right? So it is. Well, it's imaginary. Yeah, it is, it I don't is think actually, illusory is exactly. Yeah, I don't think illusory is the right word. Right. I think the, the yeah the word is imaginary. I'm worried that talking about ego and subject at this point, we're going to lose sight of this key piece that I just want to kind of get out. Fink characterizes Lacan as talking very specifically when talking about babies. The child has a need. It doesn't have a name for that need. It doesn't have an articulation for that need. It simply cries. And then the parents try to have to figure out in their language what the baby needs. Oh, it's hungry. Oh, it's tired. It needs to be warmed up or whatever. And if the baby stops crying after they do something to address that need, then they say retroactively, ah, the baby was hungry. But it's not something that actually the baby articulates and it's not apparent in the present time. And what Lacan says is it's the language of the parents that starts giving a name to the crying and the behaviors and starts articulating the baby's needs. And the baby learns from the parents, I must be hungry. I want this. I want that. And that's the way in which language comes into our lives developmentally and alienates us from this natural state where we simply exist in direct contact with our needs, but with no way of stating what they are. One way to think about this is the, and this is something Lacan actually explicitly rejected, but I think it's still helpful, is to think of the real, like the Kantian thing in itself, and to think of the world of the imaginary as the world of appearance, and to think of the symbolic realm as associated with understanding. Our contact with the real, that whatever extent we have that pre-linguistically, is lost to the extent that we begin to conceptualize it and give words to it, right? It's much different to have that raw pre-linguistic need of the baby than to me an adult who says to himself, I'm hungry. We transform that experience by putting it in, into language. That's a fine analogy as long as people keep in mind that it's not that the real is unexperienced like the thing in itself. It is experienced. It's just not experienced linguistically. And so... Right. Think of the real as associated with drives. This is where we get another difference from Freud. We get the real as associated with these very basic libidinal drives, whether hunger or sex or... See, I don't know. I didn't see the real that way. I thought the real as... When you say drives, that's, again, looking at it like it has agency. Agency is something that is built, and it is not where we think it is. And that's sort of the whole puzzle of the whole thing. Where is the subject end up being? So we think the subject is in the ego, but it's not because the ego is something that's imposed upon us by language. We might think that the subject then is in the unconscious, that if the ego is an illusion, then maybe the unconscious is the thing that that's where our true self is. But that's not where agency comes in either. And that's also not the real, because what the unconscious is then is more of this same linguistic crap, but that is gotten suppressed in some way. There was some trauma and there's trauma all over the place for the con just in the 
way we would deal with our mother and how much she paid attention to us or didn't pay attention to us. There's, there's trauma right there and how that gets resolved by, oh, this is the mother paying attention to the father. What, what are their siblings around? There are all these things create traumas, which then push certain linguistic strings underground so that the unconscious is just a bunch of sentences or linguistic strings that might not even be sentences that somehow eat at us and screw us up and we find it difficult to say them aloud. And so that's one of the things that therapy is supposed to do. That's what's really strange about the unconscious to me for Lacan as somebody who thought he had some understanding of Freud, that it's not the id, it's not this agency, it's not the real that's hiding underneath the mask, it's strings. Right. The unconscious and the real are different. Yeah. What I'm saying is he pushes drives out of the unconscious and into the real. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page. Get it by supporting us through Patreon or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.